I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. John, Man. I've been on holiday. Whenever I go oh, on holiday, nice. I know it was nice. It was nice. It's Sri Lanka. I've got a lot to say about Sri Lanka, um, but maybe now is not the place. Actually, <laughs> some quite interesting stuff that now would be the place, but we'll save that for next week. Next week, I'll tell you everything <laughs> I think about the economy of Sri Lanka. But for now, um, I want to note that every time I go away, something happens that I have previously predicted. And this time it's the gold price, right? Yes. Yes. The gold price spiked to new highs. Hooray before falling back to the same place it was in before, which was slightly anticlimactic, (laughs) we have to say. All right, well, anticlimactic, but tell me what happened. Why? Well, so so gold has been, obviously, you have to get a little bit into the technical analysis side of here, and I know that a lot lot of people are resistant to this idea. But basically, the gold chart, gold has bounced off kind of like the $2,070 an ounce level, like three times oh. since 2020. Um, and, of course, that this whenever you get something like that, then that's called resistance. And the idea is that as soon as it gets above that, it's going to rock it because, you know, that means it's broken out and then, you know, the, the resistance becomes support. And, of course, what happened is that it was kind of late on Sunday evening, early Monday morning. Clearly what happened, somebody had hit, you know, the various buttons that made the gold price kind of go up through that particular triple top level. And then it spiked up to like 2,150-odds and then immediately came back down because probably it was just, you know, there's not a lot of liquidity around at that time of the morning. Um, Probably an awful lot of people had automatic things like stop losses and stuff like that. But the point is it's still, the, the most interesting thing about gold is more how has it managed to remain at or near record highs Despite the fact that interest rates went up so aggressively this year. Because mm, that's the kind know. of thing that should push gold prices down, because obviously if you can get a, a nice return on your cash and there is no return available on gold, which does not unfortunately pay a dividend. Yeah, exactly. So the kind of the, the bigger mystery isn't so much um the fact that it, it didn't quite have a massive breakout in the way that I guess all the kind of, you know, serious fans of gold would like to see. But the fact is actually, you know, it's up so much on the year. And I mean, all right, yes, it's, you know, obviously the interest rate cycle seems to have turned now. But the point is that gold still managed to sustain this level, despite the fact that, you know, rates have gone from 0% to 5% in pretty short order. And that's the kind of resilience that tells us that the market, whatever it might say, remains pretty anxious about the global economy, remains pretty anxious about volatile inflation going forward, that kind of thing. That's the message from the gold price. Yeah, I think so. 
And also, um, well, I mean, well, the other interesting thing is that uh, the, the kind of ETF holdings, so the, 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 the exchange-traded funds that own the physical gold, they've actually lost holdings um, this year, or certainly in the last few months. So a lot of this kind of physical demand has actually come from central banks this year. Um, and obviously, this is the thing I always find quite interesting, that a lot of people still refer, uh, misquoting Maynard Keynes, to gold as a kind of barbaric relic. But the reality is that, you know, most central banks hold a significant amount of it. Um, so although it doesn't play a, a kind of you know, a legal role in the monetary system anymore, it's not actually money. Um, you know, central banks still act as if it is, or certainly a lot more reliable as a store of value than lots of other kind of uh, foreign currencies. So, yeah, I do think it's always a very, very interesting dynamic, the amount of gold that central banks hold. They're never discussed, yeah. rarely mentioned, not something central bankers like to talk about in, the, in their meetings and their press conferences. They don't talk about their gold holdings, whether they're up or down, etc. And then you hear a lot of people saying that there's, gold is pointless, nothing to gold, as you say, misquoting the barbarous relic uh, thing that Keynes said, and actually he was referring to the gold standard. Um, but yeah, there it is. On every central bank balance sheet sits a great big pile of gold, and for many central banks, an increasingly large pile of gold. Well, yeah, exactly. Good enough for um, them is good enough for us, right? Yeah. And I mean, you can... I mean, you and I have heard all the arguments about, you know, the, the demise of the US dollar and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I would take all of that sort of thing with a pinch of salt, but one thing that I would say is that I do think that you know, as well as gold being, um, you know, sort of an inflation hedge, the other thing that it hedge, and and sort of a geopolitical hedge, the other thing that it hedges against is when people are not sure what's going to happen to the global monetary system. And I think there's lots of good reasons to wonder where we are going with that. Um, because, for example, the <laughs> you know, digital gold or uh, non-physical Bitcoin, as it were, um, also has kind of rocketed over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, that's actually rocketed, right? Well, our gold is yeah, you know, resilient. Has. Resilient is good. Yes. The price of Bitcoin has really, really soared. And, of course, if we look on social media, there's a lot of people pointing out um, that you and I are complete idiots. <laughs> <laughs> for not being positive on Bitcoin and being positive on gold instead. And so it may be that we turn out to be complete idiots. And we've said this all along, right? We can't be sure, but the balance of probabilities, it looks to us like gold would be a, a better long-term bet than, than, you know, Bitcoin. But we could be wrong. I mean, yeah, we absolutely could be. And um, used to be getting called an idiot for all sorts of things. So this is just one, you know, other idiot string to the bow. But, mm, um, mm. I mean... Think the well the tricky thing is what are, what are you holding on to things for, um, and I do think that I don't think that Bitcoin kind of replaces gold as such. Um, well, our old I friend mean, Charlie Morris always says just hold both and be done with it. Yeah, I mean, I, and to be fair, kind of Charlie's point. I mean, his kind of his bold portfolio is I think eighty percent gold and twenty percent Bitcoin, and then you rebalance every so often, and that's done very well. Um, so uh, by the way, just to be clear, so that's within your gold Bitcoin holdings, he's not saying put 80% of your money in gold and 20% in Bitcoin. It's, you know, a, a, a I'm part really, of your really glad you cleared allocation. that up. Really glad right. you cleared that one up. 
because God yeah. knows what could have happened to our listeners' portfolios if you hadn't. Look, I know our listeners are very sensible people. There's always one agent going to go on Twitter and say, oh, he recommended 80% gold portfolio. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's always going to be one of those, but at least we don't get those letters in green ink anymore. Those days have passed. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. Onwards, onwards. Personal finance tip. As you know, listeners, we like to give you a personal finance tip every week, and we like to make them extremely simple. And this week we have a very, very simple one for you. Start your tax return now. Get it done before Christmas if you possibly can. Otherwise, it drags. You might be late. There are fines. There's interest. John has done his already. Haven't you, John? Yes. Yes. I have. I felt so smug. In fact, you know what? I did it. I did it pretty much at the very end of the actual tax year. As opposed to... I normally leave it till pretty All right, much we're done. Yeah, thanks, John. There's a limit to the amount of smugness I will accept on this <laughs> podcast. Thank you, John. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, we bring you a conversation with Koku Agbo Blower. He is Society General's Global Head of Economics, Cross Asset and Quant Research, and UK Head of Research. We started our conversation on the odds of a recession. Is there one coming? When will it be? How bad will it be? And will it happen in the UK, in the US, Europe, and or Asia, or everywhere at once? Well, this is a very hotly debated topic among economists and strategists. And I'm tempted to quote John uh, Galbraith, who uh, essentially said, you have two types of forecasters, those who don't know, and those who don't know, they don't know. Um, but luckily for you, we have a proprietary crystal ball at uh, Societe Generale. Actually, joke aside, it's a lot of brainstorming and data and analysis. And our view is that we are due for a soft landing in the second half of next year. So the US will go into a, a soft recession. We don't foresee a recession in the UK or in the EU. And this is pretty much because the US has tightened monetary policy quite aggressively. And if you look at the bottom 50% of the population, or if you look at credit card loans, even small cap or high yield corporates, they have been struggling thus far. So we think monetary policy is essentially delayed for a number of reasons we can talk about, but it will eventually lead to a, a slowdown of the US economy. Let's talk about the delay first. I mean, we talk a lot, John and I, about the delay in the transmission mechanism for monetary policy in the UK being related to the fact that we have longer fixes on mortgage than we've had in previous difficult environments, and also based on the fact that companies aren't stupid. You know, they spent a lot of this time when interest rates were very low managing their finances such that they either had more cash than they might have or that they have fixes on their corporate debt as well going out for a reasonably long time. So you have a much longer transmission period than you might have in the past. We used to say, you know, interest rates take a year or 18 months to come through, and now we say it's a bit longer. But on the other hand, we're still looking at a phenomenally high rate of interest increases. You know, I can't think of another point in, in history, possibly you can, where rates have gone up by quite so many multiples so quickly. I and mean, it's not just about the 14 rises, it's about the absoluteness of the shift from 0.25% up into the 5%. So it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary shift, not just in the US, but here. So even if you think the transmission mechanism is longer, it's still quite hard to imagine that you can be certain that the landing will be soft after that kind of change. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a great summary. So the, the way I look at it is that um, corporates have essentially developed a sort of um, transitory natural immunity against interest rates. 
Um, and this is the point you mentioned, a balance sheet repair, uh, having long-term refinancing, uh, which uh, cr brings some sort of immunity against uh, short-term uh, interest rates. And the other important point is uh, sort of adding insult to injury is that the excess cash on balance sheets is today earning 5%, over 5%, which is higher than the average cost of financing. So net interest exp expense for investment-grade companies is actually going down despite uh, you know this uh, phenomenal increase in interest rates. Um, but I think we also need to take into perspective the sheer size of the fiscal stimulus that got injected in the economy so it's a sort of fiscal whatever it takes response by government when lives uh, and livelihood of the population is put at risk. So if you look at fiscal and monetary combined spending or investments, it's close to $25 trillion of dollars. So that's roughly over 15 to 20% of global GDP. So that was pretty massive. And it's injected a huge amount of, let's say, kinetic uh, velocity or energy in the system. And if you talk about the immunity of corporates, you obviously have excess savings at the consumer levels, which sort of shielded or react, acted as a shock absorber uh, against the, the higher cost of financing. Um, but we estimate that the peak in terms of excess saving was around 10% of GDP for the US, so $2.5 trillion, and it's roughly 67% down from its peak. So a lot of that shield, if you will, uh, is sort of uh, becoming less and less uh, effective. So we do think that you could have a strong economy um, being offset to some extent with higher interest rates uh, and still find a new equilibrium it doesn't have to completely crash because the underlying uh, strength of the labor market is, is, um, is offsetting a, a lot of that um, slowdown or restrictive uh, monetary policy, if you will. Okay, but back to not knowing what we don't know. One thing that, that we do know is that the level of interest rates, this extraordinarily low level of interest rates that we lived for some decades until the pandemic was historically incredibly unusual, not just unusual in terms of decades or even centuries, but unusual in terms of millenniums, right? Lowest interest rates for thousands of years. I used to hawk around a chart, as I know many strategists and economists did, of global interest rates over a 3,000-year period going, look, this is the most dangerous chart in the world. Look at this. Look at how low interest rates have got. And now I don't take that chart. I take the most updated chart saying I was wrong. That was not the most dangerous chart in the world. This is the most dangerous chart in the world. An incredibly low level then popping up because that may have all sorts of unintended consequences that it's very difficult for us to think about because we've never been in a situation where rates have been so unbelievably low and then popped up so quickly. So whenever I hear talk about the soft landing, which I'm, I'm very keen to believe, I look at that and I think, might there not be stuff going on under here that we simply can't fathom because of this extraordinary confluence of, of events? I suppose I'm really asking you about your confidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. We just need to make sure it's not an uh, oncoming train because it, it can be quite brutal and painful. Uh, so, yeah, we definitely uh, are aware of the uh, sort of black swans that are, are floating around uh, or flying around. But I think it is also important to recognize the reaction function of of central banks. So if you remember in 2018, when the Fed was tightening and we saw a pretty big underperformance of the S&P, they were able to change course and cut interest rate quite aggressively. So today we are clearly well above our star, which is the natural rate of interest rates. So that's sort of the neutral rate, let's say. 
So it's extremely restrictive. But the point is also to think about how they will react if unemployment were to pick up and you start to see profit margin rolling over and risk assets starting to underperform. They will have the option of exercising the Fed put, per se, because it's sort of reloaded because... In the past, we were struggling with zero interest rate policy. You couldn't cut further down, or obviously some went in negative territory. But today, you could argue that you have close to 500 basis points of cutting power to offset any sort of major black swan that could occur. And we have plenty of them from geopolitical crisis. We had SVB or Credit Suisse earlier this year. They And the system is still very resilient because the reaction function of governments and, and central bank has been doing better than what it was in the past, where if you remember in 2008 with the great financial crisis, we had to wait for Hank Paulson convincing Congress to do the TARP. And, and that created that delay, so to speak, uh, led to pretty uh, deep uh, bankruptcies and, uh, and painful um, uh, economic adjustments. Mm. But- does that reloading really exist in the same way it has in the past now that we've rediscovered inflation? It was very easy to say you can cut and cut and cut down to the bottom when we uh, people appeared to believe that inflation was gone forever and uh, we would always knock around at 2% or below. And we now know that's not the case, that it's perfectly easy for inflation to explode inside the system in ways that not everyone expects, including global central banks certainly didn't see this coming. So we know there's a problem with central bank models. We know that, right? We know that they can't necessarily predict when and where inflation is going to come. We know that central banks have lost an awful lot of their reputation over the last couple of years. I mean, who believes a central banker when they speak anymore, right? Nobody. So that those 500 basis points, do they really exist as ammunition in the way that they used to be? Or do we now move into an environment where central bankers know how important it is to look a little macho along with everything else? And one in which we know that inflation is in there, inflation expectations have returned. And if you cut rates too fast, you're going to get another inflation explosion in the hell in 1970s. This is a great point. And I'm tempted to quote the great philosopher, Mike Tyson, who once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think central banks have clearly been punched a number of times in the face, but they also learn from their mistakes. And and it is true that we have this big debate. It's essentially called R star versus R double star. So in other words, R star is the level of interest rate that uh, is neutral for the economy. And R double star is the same concept for but for financial markets. So in other words, R central bank going to raise interest rate to level that will break the financial system or create major bankruptcies before it had time to reach the R star, which is the level required to break the inflation outbreak. And and this is where, you know, a, a lot of the uh, monetary policy um, sort of framework is data dependent, but you also have governments and regulators proactively stepping in to make sure financial stability is not compromised. And you had Christine Lagarde who made this point around the central bank needing to focus on price stability, which ought to be different to the tools needed to guarantee financial stability. Uh, and the two sometimes might may be in conflict. But going back to your point about inflation, not going back to the low uh, levels we used to uh, have, I do agree that we are heading towards a sort of higher lows, not just because of the current 
uh, environment of, of inflation linked to the war and supply chain disruption, but also f- uh, around climate change and green inflation in particular. And we have uh, Isabel Schnabel, a member of the ECB governing council, who actually talked about how the lack of supply or the constrained supply of the very metals and minerals uh, and energy sources needed to build the energy transition are constrained, and these could potentially lead to an environment of higher inflation for longer, and that could force um, the ECB and other central banks to keep interest rates uh, at higher level than they would otherwise, particularly if you think about the Inflation Reduction Act or the European Green Deal, all of which are major and sizable investment into the future. Um, So yes, we could potentially be stuck with having to think about other unconventional policy to deal with inflation. Or I think the most likely path of least resistance could simply be that we need to accept a level of higher interest rate for longer with an uh, an inflation that uh, is going to be higher than what we've uh, been used to. So in in summary, we are just going back to normal, uh, having lived a a decade of abnormal uh, economic and and market environment. And that may come with, with quite a lot of good things in that we've seen massive misallocation of capital over the last couple of decades, money going to places where money shouldn't go. And interest rates normalizing might come with difficulties for some of those companies in some of those areas, but nonetheless, it might give us back a little productivity and um, a little long-term growth. Can I just go back to the drivers of this higher for longer inflation? I mean, I think we probably agree that a little bit of deglobalization, geopolitical instability, and all this kind of thing obviously drives long-term inflation because it affects supply lines, et cetera. And also it has fiscal implications. If you have to bump up your spending on defense, of course, that has fiscal implications for governments, which again, is, is mildly inflationary. I'm interested in the green inflation discussion. Because definitely over the last few years, we've been told over and over again that the energy transition is not a cost, it's an opportunity, and that it will drive the prices of energy down long term, and that there is only good to come of it. And I think it's an important turn in the conversation that we have become more realistic about saying, this is compulsory, we are going to do this, but there is a cost to it. It's expensive. And it's going to change your energy bills and it's going to change the inflation dynamic going forward. That seems to me to be quite an important shift. Absolutely. I think it's almost reminiscent of the transitory versus persistent uh, inflation discussion we had right after COVID in 2020. And I think I think we also need to understand the sheer size of the problem around climate change. I mean, the world emits 54 gigatons of CO2 equivalent in terms of greenhouse gas emissions every single year. Uh, And when you look at the 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement, it essentially says that we need to limit the cumulative amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to 3,000 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. And that's cumulative from 1850. That's the starting point. We are today at roughly 2,500 gigatons. So the carbon budget is 500 gigatons of CO2 equivalent before hitting that 1.5 threshold, above which a lot of bad things in terms of disasters and floods and heat waves will occur. So if we have a carbon budget... Although to be clear, there's a lot of we don't know what we don't know in there, isn't there? Well, there's clearly a lot of range of uncertainty, etc. But the fact from the IPCC clearly shows you that higher concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere does raise average temperature. 
So if you have roughly 500 gigatons of carbon budget and you emit 54 gigatons every single year, then you are just going to hit, you will be above 1.5 before the end of the century. And this means that we clearly need to accelerate the transition. And this requires costs and investments. And it is something that is very difficult because the world does not want or is less comfortable with sacrificing GDP for investments in transition or reducing consumption. So just to put things into perspective, in 2020, when the world was in hibernation, global greenhouse gas emission only fell by 4.7, 4.8%, when what's required is between 5, 5.5% every single year, uh, between 9, 20, 30, i.e. we need to reduce emissions by 50% just to have a chance of net zero by 2050, and global emissions just are making new highs. So it is going to be quite a challenge, but the amount of investments could force yeah, more inflation for commodities in particular, metals, uh, copper, lithium, etc. But what's interesting is that with China slowing down today and having a, a real estate crisis, you have these very minerals and metals are underperforming because demand is under pressure. So there's a window of opportunity to make some of these investments, but they will obviously have an impact on, on growth. So to summarize, I think my view on this is that it will lead to inflation volatility, not simply a, a, a sort of a steady upward trajectory for inflation, because a lot of these price hikes will lead to demand destruction. And, and, and then it will also depend on how strong and aggressive governments will you know, implement uh, these transitions. You can think about the carbon border adjustment mechanism where you try to tax the carbon intensity of products you're importing. So you could have backlashes, etc. So it will be incredibly a, a volatile uh, path, I think. Yeah, as, uh, one of the things that we always used to say in the old days was that the solution to high prices in the commodity, commodity markets is high prices, because as soon as prices go up, obviously you get an expansion of supply. And one of the things that we keep hearing at the moment is that that solution, again, has a massive time lag on it. And obviously there have been some, some legislative changes in Europe about this over the last few days, but it's increasingly difficult to open a new mine, and uh, particularly in, in the West. If there's no shortage of lithium under the ground across the world, right? No shortage of it at all, then no one wants to dig up any parts of the UK to get that lithium out. And in Chile, no one wants to dig up Chile to get the lithium out, etc. So it becomes increasingly difficult to rely on the old equations of demand leads to supply, because today it doesn't necessarily. And that's a long-term inflationary dynamic as well. Yeah, absolutely. But the also important thing to bear in mind is that Chile and Peru are roughly 40% of the world supply of copper, and they have been putting restriction to limit the impact of these mines on biodiversity and the environment. So you are, we're, it's as if we're shooting ourselves in, in the foot, in a way. There is that feel, isn't there, that to get where you need to go, you actually need more emissions in the short term, because as you're putting up a, a transition infrastructure, and in particular, in the UK, we talk a lot about the national grid, which needs to be doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size at massive cost and massive use of metals and minerals and massive use of people's views to put up the pylons, etc. There's an enormous amount of emission in the building of a transition infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. And we are forcing everybody to be cutting emission and be net zero or have a net zero transition plan. So that's by definition restricting the supply of this very mineral. And then we also have to protect biodiversity and you have to do 
And you also have to be profitable to meet the uh, demand of your shareholders. So the whole thing is a bit in conflict and, and paradoxical. And Slightly I was about more complicated to quote, uh, than people think. I mean, this whole exercise reminds me of Albert Einstein, who said there are two things that are infinite, the size of the universe and human stupidity. And he was not sure about the size of the universe. So we are essentially uh, uh, the frog in boiling water uh, and uh, but there is uh, not else jumping out of the water. Yeah, there is something else that is absolutely limitless, right? And that is human creativity and ingenuity. And we mustn't ever discount that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. I had a chat with a colleague of mine who said um, that was, uh, the, in finance, we typically say history is a, a very bad uh, indicator of future performance. And the issue with climate change is that we're dealing with the laws of physics um, because they're in terms of energy conservation, uh, the different laws of thermodynamics um, in terms of what you can create, uh, uh, how much energy you can store, uh, for example, I mean, it's, you know, fossil fuel is, is essentially sunlight stored for millions of years, and we've, it's been an incredibly dense source of energy. And today, it's very difficult to, to replace. Even energy storage is a ta challenge to meet the same intensity and density uh, as, as fossil fuel. But the laws of physics are, some, are something that are where history is, is typically a good uh, predictor of future performance or, or behavior. So I think we innovation and creativity is definitely part of the solution, but I think changing our supply chain, circular economy, thinking about excess consumerism, and even a simple concept like you know, the world population. By 2050, we're likely to go from 8 billion today to 10 billion people so that's literally having a, a new china on earth and you know that will require uh, energy consumption food etc etc so um, there's a lot of wary, very change. wary cook of that population number it's consistently downgraded how high we're going to get to and we know how fast fertility is falling across the world we know we're already globally down to 2.4 2.5 percent we know that in the uk we're well well under two we know that even in india which was we always thought was going to be the fastest growing uh, population ever is already down below replacement rate and we know that always happens faster than we think and obviously the, the global population is still growing. We're going to have a problem with an aging population and the shape of our the shape of our population changing. But there is an argument, which I'm quite taken by, that we may soon not be worrying about there being too many people, but worrying about there being too few people, particularly across the West. Mm. I think the, the the best way to think of this is to remember the um, Joichi Kaya equation, which is uh, used in the uh, IPCC uh, report. So it simply says greenhouse gas emissions is equal to population times GDP per capita, that is consumption, times the energy intensity of GDP, so GDP, so how much energy your, your economy requires, and finally times emissions intensity of your energy system. So, you know, even if population were to stay flat or go up a little bit or less than what we thought, you still need to look at consumption, i.e. GDP per capita, and this is almost an exponential line of since the 1950s because everybody, you know, uh, our standard of living increases. And as you aspire for a higher standard of, uh, of a high standard of life, your, your consumption increase. And then obviously all of that requires energy and your energy intensity of your economy increase as well, et cetera, et cetera. So unfortunately, it's not just the population problem. It is consumption. It is energy intensity and then emission intensity of your energy system, which is limited by the laws of physics. So I think there's clearly room for a lot of innovation and creativity for us and the next generation, for sure.
There was a, a lengthy conversation in late 2020, and John and I used to have it, and lots of other economists joined in too, about the great roaring 20s and how exciting it was going to be once we'd got through the difficulties of the pandemic, the 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 technology advancements of the last decade would suddenly stop just being used to watch people dancing on TikTok and suddenly being used to drive full digitalization across Western economies and non-Western economies. And that would bring us huge productivity growth, GDP growth, and it would all be absolutely wonderful. Now, no one really talks about the roaring 20s anymore. But there are hints coming through in rising productivity in the U.S. in particular, right? Not here yet, I'm afraid, but certainly in the U.S. And we're beginning to see real wages rising around the place, which is often a hint that productivity is improving. I just wonder if you think that there is any sense once we get through your predicted mild recession that we might come out the other end and see the roaring 20s that we were so excited about only 12 months ago. Yeah, this is a good point. I mean, there was a, a lot of comparison between the roaring 20s and the roaring 2020s after the reopening of the economy, the sort of uh, revenge spending, etc. When you look at total factor productivity, it has actually sort of been flat to the, to falling. And depending on countries, obviously, the US clearly has a, a lot more investment in innovation and productivity. So for that, you need investments in technology, robots, um, etc., even artificial intelligence is expected to increase the productivity in the service industry, not just replace jobs, but make us a lot more efficient at what we do. So I think there is a yeah, there, there is a probability for productivity to increase because we won't have much alternative as businesses will are facing, as you said, real wage growth. They'll have to find ways to protect their margin by investing in more productive assets. Otherwise, they'll just have to, they'll struggle and, and underperform. So I think it is definitely a strategy that China, for example, is looking at through a huge in investment in the AI and, and technology. And that could potentially be what Japan has done with its auto in car industry after the Second World War by being incredibly uh, through the 5-0 concept uh, of zero waste, zero delay, etc., so, um, yeah, maybe productivity might help improve the path of high inflation. But I'll be more, I'll be cautiously optimistic. Okay, we'll take cautious optimism. Can we add AI into your cautious optimism? Can that change our world in a positive way rather than a negative way? Um, yes, for sure. But as we know, humans, I'm not going to quote Einstein again, but I think the problem is just is the Honestly, abuse of... I'm, I'm going with creativity <laughs> over stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I was about to to say that a pessimist is an optimist with experience, but just stay on fair. on the pos on the positive side. Uh, yeah, I think we see that in our industry. Even in my current job, we are looking at uh, use cases for using AI in the way we produce content, analyze documents, and this is clearly a no brainer. And the question is simply whether this will increase the monopoly or oligopoly of some businesses that will use AI very well at the expense of the others. It's a bit like the Magnificent Seven versus the 493 companies of the S&P 500, where you could clearly see the significant outperformance because they almost have a hegemonic position with relentless profit, profit growth. And that's really the concern because the more you inequality you have, the lower long-term growth 
because the the rich have a lower marginal propensity to spend. So I think the, the side effect is what worries me. But I do think there will be a transitory period where productivity will increase. We'll be able to do a lot more. Uh, and the challenge is, are we going to be able to share that excess growth and excess productivity with, with everybody? Or is it uh, just uh, something that will benefit the happy few? Mm, something definitely think about in that. Is there a case for investing in Chinese equities at the moment? You know, they were supposed to have a wonderful year, hasn't had a wonderful year, and there are lots of concerns about the Chinese economy and also lots of concerns for foreign investors about the logistics of holding Chinese equities and the extent that represents real ownership, etc. I wonder if you think there is a case for investing in Chinese equities at the moment. Yeah, I think in the short term, it will be pretty difficult to see return in Chinese equities. We're a lot more cautious because we think China is going through not exactly its last decade, or I don't think it's turning Japanese either, but it is, I don't think we're going to see the same 8 9% GDP growth we've been used to. I think China is in a deleveraging mode and fighting disinflation or even deflation forces. And it's sort of environment, equities don't do well. It's typically, yeah, bonds, Chinese bonds are, are, are better, in my opinion, than Chinese equities. Right. Let's move on to what we've talked about. A lot of interesting things, a lot of big picture things. But what does our ordinary investor do? What does a listener to this podcast do with their money right now? Where are the markets that are interesting, the markets that are cheap, the areas that you should definitely not be invested in, and more crucially, the areas that you really should be invested in? Can you give us any pointers there? I think it is clearly important to have a diversified portfolio. I mean, that's the the classic... um, we don't really allow um, that of, answer. Uh, that's that's not check, a, that's not, a, not on the list of acceptable answers. <laughs> um, but personally, I do like um, sort of indices, so like the S and P uh, five hundred or the Euro stocks, simply because I think companies are can be thought of as biological organisms that go through a Darwinian process of evolution by natural selection of their return on equity or their profitability. So to put it uh, simply, the DNA of companies evolve and adapt with their environment. And equity indices have this great benefit of rebalancing themselves. So an, uh, an underperforming company will be taken out of the index, whereas the next one will, you know, has an opportunity to drive the outperformance of an index. So a lot of the top, you know, companies, the S&P 500 did not exist 20 years ago, for example. So it has the great benefit of being a rebalancing portfolio through performance because it's market cap weighted. So I'll definitely have a sort of a selection of diversified global indices because as we just discussed over the next 10 20 years, if you're a retail investor uh, or even an institution investor for that matter, you're, look, you're trying to invest for the long term. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, that, so Asia, US, uh, European equity indices. Then I also like uh, bonds in this environment. We talked about slowdown and recessions. It's just been a lot of pain <laughs> with people trying to time a recession and suffered in, the, in their bond portfolio. But I think Central banks have reached their peak in terms of tightening, although there's a risk they could do more if inflation doesn't normalize. But from a risk-adjusted basis, having uh, a combination of uh, sovereign bonds makes sense. And then I'll probably throw in some gold as well, because I think we'll have, uh, you know, inflation is effectively the death of money, and gold is some sort of insurance against that debasement of uh, currency. 
And last but not least, any sort of metals and mining or sectors that are needed for the transition. Uh, we talked about uh, cobalt, copper, etc. And I think uh, they are at attractive levels given the on the performance link to the slowdown in China. Um, but I think over the next 10, 15 years, these are these are commodities that are going to outperform because the demand is, is pretty significant. So to recap, equities, a bit of bonds, gold, and transition metals. Yeah. Let's go back briefly to indices, in that if you buy a, a US indice at the moment, S&P 500, you get a very strong concentration from the seven biggest companies. Would it make sense for an investor at the moment to perhaps go for something that is less momentum-driven and go for an equal weighted index, as opposed to a market cap-weighted index? Yeah, equal weight is, yeah, that's a, it's a good point because a lot of these stocks tend to trade at high valuation uh, and could suffer from a risk, stock-specific risk. But the caveat to that argument is that if you look at these Magnificent Seven, they're almost like industries on their own <laughs> because they have market caps that are equivalent to the GDP of a number of countries. Um, so I think... The reason why they outperform is not simply a valuation argument because the interest rate is obviously very high, but it is also because of this sort of almost Darwinistic ability to generate profitability and acquire any sort of competitors and invest aggressively in return generating opportunities and, and capex. I think, um, yeah, you could reduce that if you want to reduce the volatility through an equal weight, but I wouldn't be too concerned about it personally. Um you slightly ruined the last question I always ask everybody. We have a question at the end. We ask every single participant and we keep a note of the results and we start rows on Twitter about it. We have a lot of fun with this. And I was about to ask you the question and you gave me the answer. This is a bit awkward, but I have to ask the question anyway, because, you know, we, we keep, we keep lists, right? So if I were to tell you, force you, tell you only are allowed one asset for the next 10 years. And you get a choice of three, the first one of which we usually discount, but we offer it anyway. A deposit account in the UK, gold, physical, or Bitcoin. Which one do you take? Uh, yeah, gold. <laughs> See what I mean? You ruined it. Um, so gold, excellent. We, I mostly agree. Um, uh, but tell me just briefly why you wouldn't take Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just the, the the volatility of it and the um you know the creative destruction of sort of the next innovation or technology. There's also the the risk around security and hacks. Uh, although a lot of this is is being, I mean, there, I'm sure there will be a lot of arguments against these points. But I think you still have skepticism when you look at the average investor or average household investor who is looking at safety there's a point a quote that says people care it's about the return on the money versus people have two things they have in mind the first one is the return on your money and the second one is the return of your money so when you are in a sort of a bullish and careless and risk on market um People are really much about the return on your money. And my concern is the return of your money when in bad times. And that's where I'm a bit more skeptical on on the Bitcoin, given its volatility. But in terms of the technology, I think it has a great future, obviously. That's a very diplomatic way of answering the question. <laughs> 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. And uh, I'm pleased that we agree on some things and disagree on other things because that, that, that makes things work properly. Um, you've been really kind to spend so much time with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. Catch our debrief on this week's conversation on Marin Talks Money After Show and our normal feed that is free to everyone. All our previous after shows are now also free. You asked, we delivered. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps people find the show. And if you're talking about money, you're talking about economics, you're talking about investing to your friends, talk about us too. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. A special thanks to Koku Agribluer and to John Stepek. Be sure to sign up for John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link for that is in the show notes. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.